Hey, Shion. Hey, John. How's it going? Good. And how are you? Not too bad. How you been since the last time we chatted? You know, beautiful Saturday morning in sunny Singapore. <laughs> so Locking ourselves in a room to yeah. do podcasting. What, what better way to spend a weekend? Exactly. There you go. Anyway, so you you did an interview recently, right? Yeah, I got to catch up with my old friend Hua Feng, uh, who's the president of One Championship. The president of One Championship. Tell me about One Championship. Well, some of you might think it's an MMA league. I, in fact, thought that. Yeah. Some of you um, might just follow their Instagram accounts. Yeah. But um. So it's like cool. So it's. It's it's kind of a sporting company and well like here's the thing, MMA's been around for a while, right? I mean, there's a huge organization out in uh, the United States that was born what 25 years ago. What's it called? UFC. UFC. That's right. So like, UFC's been around 25 years. And when I heard that you were going to go interview these folks, and I looked at it, I was like. Wow, okay, so they're venture-backed out here. I mean, MMA's been around for a while. They've been doing it for 25 years. What's different? Why, why all of a sudden is there interest from a venture capital company to try to build the next kind of MMA conglomerate out here in Asia? Well, so first of all, they would not describe themselves as an MMA conglomerate. They are the <laughs> okay. largest content producers in sport for millennials and Gen Z. And so I think that's a very interesting framing. Yes, it is. And um, why would venture capitalists fund it? Well, as you know, venture capitalists just want to make money. Yes, they do. And so if there's an opportunity to make money, they're into it. And um, it's it's interesting to look at, right? If you look at the UFC, as you said, founded 25 years ago, uh, it was bought over in 2001 by a couple of brothers who own uh, Red Rock Resorts and a bunch of casinos. Okay. So between 1993 and 2001, it was, you know, Owned and operated by the founders, it sold in 2001 for two million dollars. <laughs> so, so what's changed? It's got the. I not mean, a lot if, happened there. Yeah, not a lot happened in eight years. So, what, what's what's different this time around? Well, building a media business is something that requires, like, at least in this sporting um, context, a fair amount of capital. Yeah. So they have to build a league. They have to build nationwide coverage, uh, athletes, promoters, advertisers all in service of getting a media contract. Wow. So five years after um, the Red Rock guys bought over UFC, they signed a, I think, $700 million deal with Viacom Spike wow. TV for wow. nationwide broadcast rights. Yeah. And so that actually is a very classic sort of venture capital type of profile, right? You need to build something, it takes a while, it requires some investment, and then, but when you get to scale, each marginal consumer or viewer doesn't cost you any more to surf, right? Whether you show something to 10 people or 100 million people, the cost to produce the event was the same thing. Fair. Um, And so for one championship, their point of view is basically that, hey, martial arts actually originated in Asia, okay? (laughs) So So you're saying we co-opted it. Yeah, the Westerners, they, you know, they brought it, they popularized it, but, you know, Asians have been practicing martial arts for like 5,000 years. That's true. Compared to you know basketball or football or baseball, which are you know, a couple hundred years old, right. there's a much stronger tradition of martial arts in Asia. And yeah. so it was logical for there to be you know, a global um, martial arts league that is headquartered in Asia. Well, that's interesting that you say that global, because I thought these guys, again, I thought they were building it for the local market. That's not the case, huh? Well, every local market has a local champion. 
But all the fights are broadcast globally. Right. Uh, they're in something like 140 different countries where they've got broadcast rights signed. Wow. Um, Hoffman talks about going to Russia. Um, wow. And signing deals there for media rights. Um, and a lot of the drama of the fights is actually, you know, the Burmese champion fighting the Russian champion, right? Uh-huh. And you kind of have that. It's like when you watch the Olympics, right? And yeah. Everybody cheers for your team, even if it's from a super obscure sport. Yeah. Um, Singapore, as you know, does not have a lot of athletes, but like when Joseph Schooling won the gold medal, like the entire yeah. country was tuned in to watch that. You saw the Vietnamese go crazy when their under-22 soccer team was what they were approaching some kind of a championship yeah. that they almost won. So yeah, yeah, national pride would go would go deep into this, and I guess. We're getting to the point now where um, media is much more accessible, right? In this time, in this era, everyone's got a phone. Everyone's got a phone, and so you're telling me one championship you can get it on your phone. Yeah. So you know, Hoffa makes the point that when you're watching something on your phone, it's actually pretty hard to watch a 90-minute soccer match on your phone. True. Versus watching a three-minute one championship bout. That's right. And it's also a population, a generation that has a much shorter attention span. Okay. And would much rather consume small spurts of competition than, you know, I don't want to hate on soccer, but you imagine watching for 90 minutes and it ends in a nil-nil draw. Like, that's hardly <laughs> my definition of entertainment. Right. Um, so, so I think that's, like, an interesting, you know, it's almost like they found a format of sport that is optimized for the mobile age. Yeah. Um, and they are, I think, the only sports league that has launched Omnichannel from day one. Wow. Right? So if you think about the NFL or even Major League. Traditional TV broadcast. Traditional TV broadcast, right? Yeah. And traditional TV is still very important, right? Um, But now that you have the ability to connect with your fans across their devices, you can actually be with your fans all the time, not just during when matches are occurring. Right. And so hence the framing, largest producer of content, in sport. This is not your father's UFC. This is not your father's MMA. This is a brand new type of media company focused on sports and storytelling. Exactly. And their values are, you know, and it's all over their marketing copy, is uh, heroes, values, and stories. That's what they talk about. Heroes, values, and stories. Yeah. Fascinating. It's a little bit cheesy, but... um, (laughs) The point about heroes is like this idea that you can have national heroes, right? Or local heroes, hometown heroes. Right. Um, And values, they talk about basically the long history and tradition of martial arts. Right. Discipline, respect, um, endurance. Maybe a different take a little bit than than a traditional kind of MMA, UFC type uh, take on the sport. Yeah. I mean, the UFC is very geared to an American audience. Right. And so the entertainment aspect of it is that, you know, there's a lot of trash talking. Yeah. Um, personas get built up, rivalries, mm-hmm. things like that. And Huafeng makes the point that, you know, Asian people don't actually enjoy the trash talking that much. <laughs> um, Maybe some of them. Maybe most of them. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I think he makes a comment during the interview which really encapsulates it, which is that you want to make a media product that any advertiser would feel comfortable Advertising against. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. So you want to meet. You want to reach this millennial Gen Z audience. You want to feel really good about your brand and your logo showing up next to this content. Yep. And what is more wholesome than heroes' value stories? Lovely. Well, without further ado, let's get into it. I'd love to hear the interview. Can we do that now? Yeah. Let's, let's do, do it. it. All right.
All right. Super excited to have Hua Feng Tae here for one championship with us in rainy Jakarta. Um, excited too, Xian. <laughs> Hua Feng and I are old friends uh, back from business school, and um, so it's really fun to hang out and just chat. Yes, it is. Chat about a cool business. Yeah, welcome back to Asia. Well, well, before we get started, I wanted to share some fun facts about Hua Feng. Oh, no. <laughs> And, and why I think it's so great that he's at one championship. So back in business school, he was the co-president of the Business of Sports Club. Yep. And he was actually on leading the team that brought F1 to Singapore um, all the way back in 2006. So I just experienced my first F1 this year. And right. it was it was a Your spectacle. Your first F1, really? Yeah, because I was wow. gone the whole time, right? I just moved back. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was like, wow, yeah. Singapore got cool while yeah. I was gone. Yeah, well, it's been 12 years, she answered. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to catch up on what's happening in your, uh, in your hometown. I was just saying, I was, I was yeah. really, and like, people fly in for it, yeah, and it's like yeah. a well, huge. Yeah, part of why the Singapore government did it, right? Yeah. That was a big, so there's definitely, you know, there definitely was a big tourism objective. And by the way, 06 is when we started, you know, sort of running hard at, at the deal. We signed it, I still remember, in May of 2007. Yeah. And within, I think it was, um, you know, 17 months, we, we organized the first race in uh, 2008. Yeah. Um, and a big part of, you know, why Singapore did it was tourism. But I think more than that, it really was something that put Singapore on the world map, right? It's like our version of Hong Kong 7s. Yeah. Yeah. Except, was, well, except bigger, right? And, and, yeah. Um, it was awesome. Yeah. And, it, and it, um, it really put us on the world sports map. You know, a big part of, I think, why... We saw value in doing Formula One, went beyond uh, uh, just tourism arrivals and receipts. It was really about media value. It was about showcasing the skyline. Yeah. And it was about also creating a convening platform for decision makers in public and private sector yeah. to fly to one place, have some fun, do some deals. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And come I mean, back again 12 months later to do the same thing. <laughs> I had dinner with a lot of our classmates around Milken, which yeah. you know yeah, precedes yeah, yeah. the F1 weekend. That's and right. so tons of folks so Milken, the Singapore from the Summit, region. Forbes, you know, the, the, all yeah. whole range of, uh, of events, right, that happened uh, during Formula One weekend. And, uh, you know, credit to Mr. Ombing Singh and his team, credit to the, you know, the Singapore government. Back then it was uh, Minister Iswaran who was leading the charge. Yeah. Um, and obviously all of cabinet, right? Who was very supportive of the project. Yeah. No, it was great. Um, it was super impressive. Yeah. Um, so anyway, thank you for doing that. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, and now, <laughs> Hua Feng is the group president and previously was the CFO of One Championship, mm-hmm. which if you haven't heard of One Championship, is Asia's largest sports media property. Is That's that right. the right tagline? Yes. Is your marketing global person going to... I'm sorry. <laughs> Asia's largest global sports media yeah. property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but yes, um, that's right, yeah. And so... Maybe, you know, just for the audience, it would be great to, you know, hear the story of, like, mm. how you got connected with one championship. Right. Um, what convinced you to leave your cushy right. job at TPG. <laughs> I wouldn't call it cushy, writing but it was big a, checks. It was a good job. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a great job. And I'm still, um, you know, really good friends with, uh, with the TPG guys. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, um, you know, we'd love to just hear the story yeah. of, like, how that came to pass. Yeah. Look, you know, I, I've always had a passion for sports. And I think that passion... Uh, was amplified when I got involved in Formula One. So it's yeah. interesting you started with that because that's really when I transitioned from being just a sports fan to being a big fan of the business of sport. Not just because, uh, you know, it's a great business model. We can talk about why that yeah. is shortly, but also because it's so fun. <laughs> you know, through Formula One, you know, I, 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 uh, I had uh, 
the precious opportunity to be part of the team. Have you driven an F1 car? No, I no. <laughs> although although I did drive my car on the on the Formula One track okay. <laughs> back back then. Um, but you know, a Formula One for me was sort of a, an opportunity to put you know Singapore and Asia, you know, on the world sports map. Yeah. And uh, I never forgot that feeling, right? And I really enjoyed just sort of being around, uh, you know, the, the the various elements of putting not just a race but a race event that's broadcast all over the world together. Yep. Right. Um, so that stayed with me for a long time, you know, at HBS, that was expressed through my, you know, presidency of the, of the business of sport club. And then I guess what happened was, you know, that passion for sports and, and the, and the business of sport never went away. Yeah. So even though, you know, uh, um, you know, I was in private equity for almost seven years, uh, deep inside I had this strong interest, right. in the sports business. And what happened was I was introduced to Chatri and we're partners now, uh, the founder of, you know, one championship. Actually, through uh, through a mutual friend uh, uh, who also went to HBS, <laughs> and um, and uh, we became friends. And you know, when he started to raise you know serious money, that's when I realized, hey, like there could be an opportunity for TPG uh, uh... to invest in the company, right? Because TPG tends to invest in growth stage and yep. beyond, and he had sort of moved uh, beyond venture venture stage. You know, as, yeah. as Sequoia did his Series C raise. Yeah. And that's when I started sort of say, hey, bro, like <laughs> you got you got you got the TPGN, you're moving at all its value, and then that's when I started to learn more about the business. And I guess you know one thing led to another, and I was like, wow, this is like all I ever wanted to to, to kind of do, right? Be uh, you know be involved in a high growth business domiciled in Asia yeah. that was putting Asia on the world sports map. And the added bonus in this case was it was headquartered in my home country of Singapore, because our business model doesn't require us to be in Singapore, even Southeast Asia. Right, the model, uh, uh, it, it's a global business. So why is right? it in Singapore? Well, I guess, you know, uh, Chachi was living, was li- you know, he came back and he, he picked Singapore, right, uh, as the place where he wanted to start uh, the business. I think Singapore provides, as you would know, I mean, you're back in Singapore too, right, and, you, and your business, a lot of it is outside Singapore as well, right? Infrastructure, right, uh, it's a place where, where talent, infrastructure, connectivity, uh, kind of all converge in one place. And we have a government... Um, you know, which I used to be a part, <laughs> that is very pro-business, right? And uh, pro, uh, uh, yeah, it's very This is the Singapore government ad portion of the podcast. <laughs> Come to Singapore, can I, can I open your business. Yeah, once a silver servant, always a, always a silver servant, right? But No, no, um, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like a stroke of luck that, that all these, you know, it looked like such an interesting thing that Chachi was doing. And we ended up, you know, hitting it off really well. Um, yeah. Obviously, starting as friends, but... And then we realized that uh, that that this is a business partnership that could work. So yeah. you saw a lot of businesses so quit, you know, as an it, investor, yeah. right? Over yeah. seven years, you saw a ton yeah. of businesses. Yeah. What was it about his business that made you go separate from the sports thing? Which yeah, obviously exactly. there's, a, honest, there's was, a personal was a, yeah, aspect exactly. to it. The personal part was a big part of it. But like, yeah, you know, when we talk yeah. about the business model. When I put on my investor, you know, yeah. my investor hat or my businessman hat, as yeah. opposed to my fanboy, yeah, <laughs> my sort of sports, yeah, fanboy hat, which. Once again, I'll be honest, right? That was what drove me to, 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 you know, I wouldn't have done this. There's a lot of sexy businesses out there. Yeah. E-commerce, right? FinTech, yep. right? Hailing. Um, but uh, but I would not have done this for any other industry mm-hmm. because it's just a passion of mine. But, you know, even putting that aside, um, this is a really interesting business model because in a world of severe cash burn, and look, I don't have to tell you about, you know, what's been in the press recently, mm-hmm. right? WeWork, et cetera. Um, in a world of, you know, very severe cash burn, 
it's nice. It was nice to come across something that was asset light and IP heavy. Yep. Right now, that's not to say that you know it's easy to build a business like this. It takes many many elements to come together. Yeah. Right. The production, the team, the ability to build uh, an event operations platform that goes week in week out to different cities all over Asia, mm-hmm. different jurisdictions, different languages, different cultures, different regulatory regimes, and stage event in the biggest stadiums. And fill them, right? And then broadcast this event to like 140. I mean, that's not easy. Yep. 140 countries. Yep. Um, and that number is growing. If you go to, you know, I was um, I was with a friend uh, two weeks ago. And he was like, hey, bro, like I was just in Russia. And I saw one championship on TV in the hotel. Are they stealing your content? No, we actually have a deal in Russia. <laughs> right? So we're on Match TV. Yeah. Right? Uh, uh, one of the well-known uh, sports uh, uh, platforms in Russia. Yep. So we have a global broadcast. You know, to build an asset that can do all of that, we can week out different Asian countries with a stable of world champion fighters. That's not easy. Yep. Right? Um, so there was I, what I saw was a business with a lot of IP, asset light. Let me, let me um, describe in simple terms what asset light means. This means that it doesn't matter if 10 people, 100 people, a million people, or 10 million people are watching an event. The cost structure of a, an yep. event stays the same. Right? Asset light, IP heavy. Yep. And that's the same for softwares, uh, software businesses, right? Yep. The same for, you know, if the IP works and there's a way that you can make it locally relevant in different markets, yeah. the marginal cost of, you know, beaming it to another country is almost zero. The US is a great example. So starting this year, we um, started in, uh, we, you know, we started a partnership with Turner Sports. So today in the US, our US fans can watch us on TNT, which is also the home of the NBA mm-hmm. uh, in the US. Uh, and BR Live, Turner Sports uh, OTT platform. And on day one, and that was an eight-figure deal. Yep. Okay, for our, our rights um, to just broadcast it. No live event in the US. So on day one, my US business is profitable like this, right? Because the only cost that mm-hmm. we've incurred, I have no office there, I have no staff yep. there. The only yep. cost I've incurred is my flight, <laughs> my couple flights there, right, uh, to, to get the deal done. I come back, I spend a couple... A little bit, you know, a couple dollars more on creating the satellite beam and it's done, right? That is the part of the business. And I can do the same thing. We've done the same thing in Germany. Yep. We've done the same thing in Russia, yep. in China, yep. right? Now, look, obviously over time when you want to deepen, right, your operations in a country, you know, commercial partners, sponsors, yep. you, know, yep. you want to start making movies like what we're doing in the Philippines now with Globe Telecom, then of course you need to then hire more people and then your OPEX goes up. But in general, the core asset, the cost of creating the core asset yeah. that is being beamed in over 140 countries week in, week out is the same. Yep. So that's something really unique. I do not need road, rail, or air links to scale, unlike many businesses that you and I have looked at as yep. investors, right? Yep. The second thing is there's no real direct competition. So that's, so, yeah. you know, and I'm not trying to give you a hard time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, when startups come to me and they're like, yeah. I have no competition, <laughs> you know, I yeah. sort of raise an eyebrow and I'm yeah. like, is yeah. that really true? Even yeah. if it's competing against inertia or not doing something yes, yes, or, enough. you know, fair something enough. in adjacency, yeah. um, like it always makes me ask this question, yeah. right? So like, yeah. um, I, I think I could buy the, yeah. you know, there isn't a direct Asian competitor going after the same set yeah. of markets. Yeah. You know, yeah. there are developed sports markets, uh, yeah. sports 
leagues, you know, NBA, NFL, yeah. whatever, UFC, mm-hmm. and they sort of have a different focus. Yes. Um, and so maybe the question I would ask yeah, you so is I like, said no direct, right? Yeah. Yeah. I said so, no direct. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So, yeah. so maybe the question. This would is be, not a. This is not a look. And all respect to our buddies, uh, yeah. Nadim and Anthony, right? Yeah. But this is not a Gojek grab situation. Totally. This is not a Tokopedia Bukalapak Lazada. Uh, totally. situation this is not I, mean, I can go on and on and on yeah, yeah. so so maybe <laughs> right? a more interesting question is yeah. why do you think that is why isn't yeah. there um yeah. a direct competitor yeah and it might not be in the yeah. pure mm-hmm. um martial arts space yeah. but you know could one imagine you know, you know what Xi'an? you know how they say life is a lot about luck and timing i think a little bit of it is luck and timing yeah if the ufc who is our primary competitor today right and look once again all, Full credit and respect, right, for what they've built. Uh, you know, the, the very, very you know, big and successful business yeah. they've built, full respect and credit. Um, but if they had sort of raised a big team in Asia, you know, 10, 20 years ago, yeah. and decided that, yes, Asia's a priority, we're going to double down, triple down, yeah. I don't think we would have been able to come up so quickly. Yeah. question is, why did they not do that? Yeah. Well, I think the U.S. market was big enough for them, right? Um, the U.S. is the mecca for sports commercialization. Well, that's the reason why we're... You know, actually doing well there as well. Yep. Because it's a very, it's a thriving market for sports. Yep. You know, and sports media. Um, it's a but, place where people watch more sports than they play. Right. Yeah. You know, so yeah, if you yeah, talk to like yeah. Brits or Aussies, they're yeah. like, "Why do Americans watch so much sports? Yeah. They don't get off their chairs and like, <laughs> right? Because we're, as you say, like you know, like yeah, Brits yeah, will yeah. play rugby into their fifties. Right. Sure. You know, second team, third team, fourth yeah, team. Yeah. 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 But you know, you, you, it's like yeah, a funny yeah, dynamic. Yeah. But, but yes, yeah, definitely, the yeah. U.S. is home so, of the so, sports so, watcher. So actually, one is luck, right? The biggest sort of uh, uh, commercial, you know, martial arts slash mixed martial arts organization, never really focused on Asia. The second is, I think, Chatri is a very rare sort of person. You know, he spent a good part of his life um, being a professional Muay Thai fighter. You know, um, who went to HBS? Who went to HBS? Went to Tufts. You know, worked at Fidelity, did a startup, worked on Wall Street. I mean, he's. He has this sort of blue, you know, blue chip kind of, you know, Wall Street slash entrepreneurial career. But hey, by the way, he was also, you know, he spent he he also spent time in the professional Muay Thai circuit, and and also he still trains today. He is really so when you have that combination of passion yeah. and business savvy, I think magical things can happen. Um, there's a lot of smaller, I would say, martial arts organizations, be they gyms, be they leagues, that are kind of scattered all over Asia. But they're usually started, it's a more kind of mom and pop setup. It's usually by a martial artist that doesn't have the business savvy. And quite frankly, for people that are business savvy, it's hard to just start a sports league. If you think about the history of sports properties, yeah, it's very rare that you can come out of nowhere and start a sports league. It's just very rare, right? So it's not something anyone can do. It requires like that mix of domain expertise, yeah. you know, a bit of, a bit of uh, a, well, quite a bit of business savvy. Uh, and also, I think, um, a bit of craziness, right? You would never try and start something to compete with the NBA. You would never try and you know, start something to compete with the EPL. But I think one of the things, one of the differences here is that there was no martial arts organization that cut across all of Asia that was commercializing and organizing the sport before we came along. Mm-hmm. You have single country, um, once again, you have single country uh, promotions that focused on, say, you know, Thailand that focused on Japan, focused on Korea. But you didn't quite have, I think, once again, the, the combination of international business savvy plus domain expertise that I think was required to just start this thing. And also funding, right? To be fair, 
you know, Chatri himself was quite wealthy. We have, you know, uh, uh, Saurabh uh, Mittal, our vice chairman, who was uh, who really started the company together with Chatri, who yeah. also has a substantial stake in the business. Yep. Um, so they they had they had the funds right yeah. to to bankroll this for a while before institutional money started coming in. Yeah. And that's important. Why? Because this is not like. A chain of cafes. It's not like I open one cafe, I start selling coffee, and I can sort of, I have a payback right away. You're building, like, this is like a masterpiece. It's a work of art. I need to get the right athletes, right? I need to get the right production crew. I need to have the initial capital to go have, to stage event after event mm-hmm. after event, so that after some time, I have a critical mass of events where it goes beyond just being an event asset, and it becomes a media asset. How far right. did they get the business before they raised their first round of institutional Oh, money? wow. This was, uh, I would say the first kind of real institutional round was uh, was Haliconia. And uh, that must have been, God, like, I mean, this was probably three, four, four years ago. Yeah, two, three, four years ago. Yeah. And so at that point, so that, so, so they'd they had actually so, organized a fair yeah, number of events. Other, my, and, you know, there are other investors, you know, friends and family. There are other sort of yeah. investors as well in the business. Um but for a while, you know, uh, uh, it, was, it was some years before Haliconia, you know, uh, uh, and the investment was led by the head of Haliconia himself, uh, Derek Lau. Um, it was some years before they came in. Yeah. And then after they came in, Sequoia came in. Yeah. And then Sequoia came in again, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, for the D round. Yeah. Um, but back to your question, I think it's just one of those things that people don't think about starting, right? Yeah. So the, 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 the main competitor never focused on Asia, and then... People generally don't think about starting sports leagues. Yeah. <laughs> Especially big ones. Yeah. Right? Someone may organize a couple of boxing events, totally, right? Totally, totally. Someone may organize like a small little soccer thing, couple events, we're done. You know, like, but but who, who, who would ever think of trying to compete with the NBA or the NFL? But the reason why we can do it is because martial arts is actually from Asia. It's native. It's native to Asia. Yep. Even with the UFC, a lot of the fighting styles originate from Asian forms. Yeah. The ground game, jiu-jitsu, while it was popularized in pop culture by the Brazilians. It comes from Japan. <laughs> a lot of the stand-up combat comes from Muay Thai, it comes from karate, it comes from Taekwondo. Yeah. So unlike basketball, unlike rugby, unlike certainly American football, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, martial arts is the one thing that comes from Asia. Not only that, it actually, every, every single Asian country has a martial art. Yeah. It's not like cricket that is from Asia but it's only really relevant in two Asian countries. Yep. Right? Um, well, I wouldn't say it's from it. It's really popular in Asia. Yeah. But 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 it's only really big in like India and Pakistan. And no right? one wants to watch table tennis. <laughs> no one really wants to watch, watch the table tennis. Now, don't get me wrong, right? There's some sports that are really popular in Asia, but once again, the, the you know, like basketball. But it's only really popular in China, Taiwan. You know, it's not that big in India. It's not that big in Japan. Yeah. So this is one sport that not only is from Asia, it is practiced all across Asia. Cross-cutting. And oh, by the way, um, Asians are pretty good at it, <laughs> right? Asians are pretty good at martial arts. Surprise. <laughs> Did you do martial arts growing up? No. But I'll bet you had friends and family. Tons, tons. Tons, right? I did take one note. My yeah. sister did take one note. We're all black belts. Yeah. And that's normal. In Asia, that's normal. You walk around and like your mom, your aunt, your dad, someone, your cousin, your sister, your brother, someone yeah. uh, around you, more than half the people around you would have done martial arts. Yeah. Right? So it's a sport that is from, and oh, one more thing. It has thousands of years of history. Yep. Versus even a Western sport in a Western country. You know, I'm a huge basketball fan as well, as you know. Yep. Uh, but basketball has less than 200 years in North America of history. Martial arts has four to 5,000 years of history in Asia, all the way from, you know, the temples of 
Shaolin, yeah. right, to the villages, some village in Thailand, right? So it's something that's endemic, yeah. right, to this part of the world. So when you take all that together, plus the fact there wasn't anyone doing it on a large scale, plus, you know, once again, that, that mix of domain expertise, business savvy, and craziness in Chatri, yeah. you have a formula for, uh, for success. No, I mean, I love, yeah. I love this story because yeah. I think that a lot of people want to copy things from the West and bring it to Asia. Yeah. And a lot fewer entrepreneurs think about, well, what's unique yeah. here yeah. that actually has the potential to right. be big? Right. Um, so I, I, I will throw in one that. more point as well, which is there is no, once again, putting on my you know, former TPG hat, right? As an investor, when I look at this, it doesn't really have business model risk. The same way many business models, including wine hailing, are still kind of proving out. Totally. Right. Right. People because, are watching entertainment for like <laughs> entertainment, years and years. Sports, UFC is broadcast. Yeah. So in a straight, so I know it's not as cool because it's not a new business model, right? The same way, like trendy. Uh, you know what's space. cool? You know what's cool? <laughs> Cash flow and unit economics. There you go. That's what's cool. There you go. So the only uncool about the only uncool thing about this is that it's not a new business model, right? Yes. That we introduced to the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I do think but what as an is, investor, I like that. Yeah, I don't have to worry about whether this yeah. actually works. And, right? and maybe to switch gears a little bit, yeah. which is I, I do think one thing that is different yeah. about the way you guys have instantiated this business model is that you guys were kind of like omni-channel out of the gate. Yes. Right. Where I think that yeah. you know the older leagues, you know, began with broadcast, yes, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And you know now they're OTT. Yeah, everyone's yeah, got yeah. an app. Blah blah yeah. blah. Yeah. How do you think that sort of being born in the digital age? And sort of having this kind of omni-channel perspective from the gate, how does that change how you um, approach the business and your audience? Um, hmm. Well, I think it does. Okay, so this the same way the NFL was born in a, in a, in, a, in the age of broadcast, right before OTT became big. And by the way, the NFL is important because they are kind of who we compare ourselves to. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So in terms of the uh, genre, the combat sports genre, obviously, you know, the closest uh, thing you can find is the UFC. But in terms of being culturally relevant to your home geography, which is really what's driving our business at scale, it's more like the NFL. The NFL is a mainstream sport in the United States of America. 300 million people. We are a mainstream sport in a region of 4.4 billion people. So when we think about our business, right, and how we build traction, how we build um, partnerships, how yeah. we build relevance, yeah. how we capitalize on, on our relevance to Asia, yeah. it's more like the NFL. Right? Because martial arts in the U.S. is a number five, number six totally. sport after the big... But why the NFL and not the NBA? Uh, why the NFL not the... Well, the NFL is bigger than the NBA. <laughs> okay, so you so want to the biggest, you so, like a more worthy well, no, 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 no. example. But, 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 but actually, that's a good question. The NFL is actually more mainstream than basketball. Yeah, in, in the US. but basketball is more global. It is more global, but so once again, depends on yeah, how you yeah. think okay. about this. Here. I'm thinking about what is the most mainstream and mainstream sport in home geography, yeah. and then you expand from there. Now, yeah. the unfortunate thing—I wouldn't say unfortunate—but the difference is that American football somehow hasn't really taken off in Asia, but martial arts has taken off globally. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's a ton of great American athletes, a ton of great European athletes. Watch the Olympics, right? Yep. There's four yep. or five martial arts on display yep. uh, with high-quality athletes from all countries, not just Asian people, yeah. right? So that's the difference. It's mainstream in a whole market of Asia. It is widespread across Asia. 
Unlike the NFL, though, it has actually spread across the world. Yeah. Everyone knows who Bruce Lee is. Yeah. Everyone knows who Jackie Chan is. Yeah. Right? Um, even Zhang Ziyi and Michelle Yeoh. Yep. Right? Are martial artists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it's, there's something about this, you know, that's, that, that, that's pretty special. But back to your question about, uh, about being omni-channel. You know, to be honest, I think the logic of how you approach the market is no different from how the NFL thought about it. It's just that now you have one more thing called digital and OTT to think about. Because now a lot of new eyeballs and young eyeballs, that's, that's their experience, right? Uh, as you know, digital yep. is replacing uh, uh, TVRs. Yeah. Um, so when we were born, we were born in the age of, hey, TV is still very relevant. Don't get me wrong. In fact, um, the vast majority of, let's put aside demographics, the vast majority of entertainment consumption today in Asia, across all age groups on aggregate, still, still occurs uh, on TV. Now, I cannot tell you whether the TV viewing audience is more or less engaged than the OTT audience. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that actually, you know, and also OTT, it's easier to measure, right? Measure things. But I would say in terms of just pure reach and eyeballs that you're touching, TV is still very relevant today. Yep. But we all see this OTT thing that is picking up. We all see the Facebooks, the YouTubes, even the Amazons, you know, starting to uh, stream uh, sports, entertainment, and a yeah. whole variety of content. Yeah. Um, obviously, you have YouTube, right? That yeah. that that um, uh, that was one of the first movers in the space as well. So you obviously then need to tailor your content and tailor your distribution strategy to cater to both. Yeah. Because today the bulk is in TV, but the fastest growing is actually digital, right? And you and the writing's on the wall. I mean, Tencent just paid 1.5 billion US dollars for NBA's digital rights in China. You know, and these numbers just keep going up and up and up and up. Yep. Um, Facebook, you know, bid hundreds of millions of dollars on IPL rights uh, for India. Um, Facebook's a, a big partner of ours as well, as you may know. We have, uh, I think, close to 18, about 18 million fans on Facebook now. So I think it didn't, you know, it wasn't, it was just obvious that we had to make sure that we created deals and relationships with all these guys at the same time. Um, now, one thing that we got lucky with as well is that our content, you know, uh, uh, martial arts content, is very suitable for digital viewing, especially on mobile devices. Think about your mobile device. It's yep. pretty small. Yep. Um, it's a lot easier for me to consume 13 to 14 martial arts bouts with 13 to 14 conclusions, quick conclusions, right? Edge of the seat, quick conclusions, um, than to watch like an entire soccer match, which may or may not have a conclusion. A conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to you soccer fans listening. Yeah. 90 minutes ending right. in draw is not right. anyone's idea yeah. of fun. I mean, I'm okay watching soccer on TV. It's not more bearable. Watching on the phone, yeah. like, I'd much rather watch like, our content you know, on a phone. Yeah. So our, you know, so our content, once again, a bit of luck, right? It's just, it's just suitable for, for digital and mobile consumption. Uh, it's suitable for a millennial audience that tends, yeah. to, tends to have short attention spans. And is glued to their phones. Yeah. Right. Short attention spans means that once again, a lot easier to entertain them with thirteen to fourteen conclusions over the course of a few hours versus like a yeah. goalless, <laughs> right? A uh, 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 ninety-minute soccer game. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. So um, you know, I spent some time going through you know your materials online. You know, uh, heard some of your colleagues speak, and. You know, the tagline you guys always push is this notion of um, values, heroes, and stories. And, you know, to be honest, it's a little cheesy. 
Sure. Um, and I was kind of curious to get your perspective on like, yeah. what does that mean to you? And like, why is that important to the company? Is it just marketing googledygook yeah. or does that actually matter? So that's, uh, so I'll be, to be really honest, Shian, <clears throat> it, um, it really matters. Because ultimately, if you think about sports and you think about what draws people to sports and sporting moments um, and what makes them want to go back and watch sports over and over and over again, it is kind of those things. That's the Olympic formula. Think about Joseph Schooling, right? You and I are, uh, are uh, <laughs> you know... Our, our Olympic gold medalist, <laughs> our, our only Olympic, Olympic gold medalist. You know... Um, you know, you think about the whole country stopped to watch him compete in the 100-meter butterfly final right, yeah. in Rio, where he beat Michael Phelps. The whole country cried at the same time. The whole country, you know, it, but what is that about? That's about his, his story. That's about, okay, so first of all, it's about his values, right? His grit, his tenacity, right? His determination to overcome the odds. He had to uproot his life. Family had to, like, you know, reverse mortgage their house, you know, to send him... Uh, to um, to train in the U.S. because that's where he was going to receive the best training. He has been through a lot. Yeah. But it is because of his values, the values that sports um, expresses and uh, you know and encourages, the values that martial arts. If you think about martial arts and you think about the Asian take on martial arts, it actually is about the values. It's about values of integrity, humility, honor, respect, courage, compassion. Right. Um, it's not really about fighting. So when you think, so that's something that's uniform across all sports. It's the values that these athletes express, and that is, is these values that young kids all over Singapore were inspired by when they saw schooling win. It's about schooling himself, the hero, the icon, and it's about his story of how he got there. Every one of these athletic platforms, uh, you know, has these three things. Yeah. You can look at any sport, our sport. You look at the NBA. You look at the NFL. Ultimately, what draws people to these leagues is. You know, obviously the sports heroes, but also their values and their stories. A good example, like, um, um, and this is a pretty well-known example in the, in the Philippines. Um, you know, Edward Falaya, you know, is a former uh, lightweight uh, world champion. Um, he lost five of his siblings to illness when he was young. First in his, ended up being the first in his family to go to college, ended up being the first uh, Filipino to represent the Philippines in Wushu, in the SEA Games. Uh, he was a gold medalist in the SEA Games. Uh, and this is someone that started from abject poverty. Yeah. Can you imagine losing your siblings, like five of your siblings? Like tomorrow your sister dies yeah. and your brother dies. I mean, that's crazy. Most of us, uh, you know, would not, you know, I'm, I, you know, yeah. would not even think about, uh, would not even imagine having to go through that. Yeah. Right. But it is because of his life story that he has this type of fandom uh, in, in the Philippines. Yeah. And, you know, for us, to be honest, what makes part of our jobs very meaningful is to be able to, to be able to provide a professional platform yeah. for all these athletes with amazing life stories, amazing values to have careers, right? But that's the power of sport. It goes way beyond the lights and sound, right? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, and you think you know we we do a lot of and if you think about everything we do outside the ring, you know, or outside the circle. Um, it, it actually, we, we spend a lot, you know, we have our own in-house production team that produces thousands and thousands of videos. How much, how much content do you put out a day? I, well, oh, <laughs> a day. 
Actually, I, I can't remember the exact number. I'll have to get back to you on that. It's a lot. It, it just grows every day. Like, I've yeah. lost count. To be honest, I've lost count. Our production team has gone from, like, three people to, like, I think 80 people. <laughs> you know? Um, over the past, you know, yeah. seven, eight years. Yeah. Um, so, content creation is a huge part. So, we have one studios. We have, we have our own content creation arm or content production arm uh, who, as of, you know, a few months ago, uh, we were the only clients too. But now, we're starting to do collaborations. Uh, with other, you know, IP owners, with other producers, to actually start making content that is outside uh, uh, just the, co- the the competitive uh, element. We have a reality show. We have local leagues. We have uh, we're making a movie about Team Lakai, uh, uh, the most uh, famous, one of the most famous uh, fight teams uh, in Asia, actually the world, uh, in the Philippines, in partnership with Globe. Yeah. Right. But this is where see, but this is really where the heart of the business is, right? The if you look at our Facebook page, you look at our YouTube page, uh, all our social media, it's just a content engine. It's, yeah. it's always on. So that's why when, I, when, when we say we're Asia's largest global sports media property, that's a very material statement. Most companies that do sports events are sports events companies. Mm-hmm. Only a few beyond a certain scale become sport. You know, when, when this really becomes a powerful business model yeah. is when it becomes a sports media play. The NFL, the NBA... Think about the NBA. They have a huge business in China. Do they have any events in China? They have a few preseason games. There's zero regular season games. Yep. And there's zero playoff games in China. Yep. But, you know, they just signed this. <laughs> you know, they yeah. have huge business in China. Meter right sponsorship. Why? Because it's the media. Right? So it's not just the games. It's the stories. the movies. People mm-hmm. want to know what Kevin Durant is eating for lunch. Right? People want to know the neighborhood that, that Steph Curry grew up in. So when you take values, heroes, and stories, and you express it outside the ring, there's there's a lot you can do as well. And we do a lot of that. And that keeps you, the fans coming back. How do you yeah. manage the athletes? You know, I think one yeah. of the challenges leagues have had, and, and you guys are a relatively young league, so I think maybe the balance of power is a little bit different. But, you know, as athletes have become more empowered, mm. um, you know, you see that in, yeah. like, collective bargaining you see that in them trying to express their own political views. You know, various leagues have various approaches to that. And then even with the latest, like, you know, LeBron engineering his own team move and things like that, you know, mm. they're starting to play more active, almost like front office types of roles in their yeah. own careers. Yeah. So, like, when you guys think about, you know, your athletes that are part of, you yeah. know, the circuit, um, yeah. what's your responsibility to them? And, and yeah. how, you know, are they employees? Are they... Um, Stars, or like, yeah, we, yeah. how do you, how so do you think about them? Athletes uh, are under exclusive contracts to us. Um, but actually, interestingly, we also have our own in house agency where our top athletes um, are, you know, have management contracts with. So we help them build their careers, we help them with their endorsements. We also help them, we, and we take a long view. So I think the big difference between us and some other of our peers is yeah. that we treat athletes as partners. There's a certain partnership approach. We treat them, um, we're not transactional about our athlete uh, relationships. Um, and and you can ask, I mean, you, you can ask them, right? We partner with them to create content, to market them, to promote them, to help them with endorsements. And once again, our top athletes, we also invite to join you know, our agency and be managed by us. Now, I'll, now of course, in any top-level league, be it the EPL, La Liga, and Serie A in soccer, be it 
you know, us in the UFC and combat sports, be it, you know, any, any league, any top level league will have top athletes. And of course, if you're a top athlete, yeah, you're going to have some bargaining power, right? And leverage. Um, but I'd much rather be in this situation than be a nobody league <laughs> dealing with, you know, third tier athletes. Yep. So we're in this game, we're in this game, we're a top tier league in, in, in this game. When you're top tier league, you're top tier athletes. And the best thing you can do, which is what we do, is become partners with them and not be transactional, treat them like partners, right? And yeah. not and not digits. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys recently uh, launched an esports business. Yes. Um, and it would be great to just kind of understand, like, you know, you started in martial arts. Yeah. Um, and I think you made a pretty compelling argument for sort of like why that made a ton of sense for, mm-hmm. you know, this region and like mm-hmm. the market need. Um, why esports? Yeah. Yeah. So, interesting. So, over time, we realized that the vast majority of our fans are millennials. Okay. So. We're millennials, Huafang. <laughs> we're on the tail end of it. <laughs> Barely. Yeah, but you know what I mean, right? It's basically millennials and Gen Z. Yeah. And esports, you know, I don't have to tell you about how it's growing in popularity. And we just felt, hey, this is a very natural thing. You know, if you already have someone that likes, you know, chocolate, chances are they like vanilla. I'm sorry, maybe that's a bad <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Ooh. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Like, like, like you, have, you have a ready fan base because it's a huge... So we actually surveyed this. So 60 to... I think 70% of our fans are actually... Will actually like esports as well. Yeah. Our fan base is very, is very, very youngish. 80% of our fans are millennials. Right? And of that, of, and of that, of that 80%... Yeah, so 80% millennials and like 70% like esports. So when you take that and say, hey, look, I have a ready base yeah. of millennials that are willing to consume, that are ready to consume, you know, another type of sport, this this would be the natural thing to get into. And are they complements or substitutes? Oh, they're completely complementary. So, well, so here's the thing, right? Why do we even want to get outside of martial arts? Because our, we realize our platform is completely scalable into, into other types of uh, to content. Once you have a brand, and once you have a platform, and once you have the capability to organize events week in, week out in different Asian countries, the ability to broadcast those events across you know, digital and you know, TV platforms, yeah. the ability to market the events, the ability to raise sponsorship dollars against the events, that's something that you can just scale pretty easily into something else. So what so comes after ex- esports? Who knows? We can do other sports. But this is enough to keep us occupied. You know, these are two big areas. It's fast growing. Yeah. Um, and like I said, you know, we're, we're, we're title agnostic. So unlike some, you know, a lot of esports events are organized by the actual developer. Yeah. Which can only organize like yeah, that game. Yeah, yeah. You know, but for us, you know, we've already started with Tekken and Street Fighter in Japan this week. Uh, we're going to be doing Dota 2. Yeah. Uh, in Singapore uh, and in, uh, in uh, Indonesia. Yeah. Um, we're going to be announcing more things. Yeah. We've just hired, uh, uh, you know, our CEO of esports, Carlos, who is from Battlefy. He moved his family from the U.S. to join us here and lead the charge. Yeah. Um, and and the response has been overwhelming. Yeah. You know it's what's next? What? I want you to organize like the World Startup Cup. The World Startup Cup. <laughs> Global Startup Competition. <laughs> no, but that's what I'm saying. Like, there's not. You, you t- tell me one other company in this part of the world that can do what I just described. Week in, week out, different Asian cities, full-scale events, at scale, okay? Full-scale events, broadcast to 140 countries, 
marketing, sponsorship, everything. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to find. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to find. Yeah. Cool. So it was just a natural extension. Yeah. Yeah. I went to my first esports tournament two weeks ago in Vietnam. Oh, did you really? It was, I mean, I think it's really something to experience, right? So first of all, like, the audience was super young. Yes. Right? Yes. So yeah. I, I was invited yeah. by... Um, one of the owners of Team Flash, which mm-hmm. is actually a Singaporeans who own a Vietnamese esports team, right. and they were competing in the finals for Vietnam yeah. to go to the World Cup. Yeah. And the audience was really young. It was sponsored yeah. by Coke's Energy Drink, which, if you tried it, is it's an energy drink. Right. Um, and the enthusiasm plus the multi like they were watching the screen yeah. and the players they were on their phones updating their own twitch feeds of everything <laughs> right. else yeah and everyone was just like looking at multiple things all at the same time i was like wow wow i think this is the future but it's like yeah yeah I, you know i had yeah. to like read the wikipedia post for like the rules of the esports game because i was like what is even right. happening on this screen yeah i have no idea what's going on but it was it was cool so with the launch of one esports you know we have now effectively become the largest you know, content, the largest producer of live sports content for millennials and Gen Z. If you think about it, because we're picking sports that have a high, uh, millennial uh, concentration. Yeah. 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 Viewership concentration. So like on any given day, even anecdotally, you look around, right? You go to all these like gyms and and kickboxing, punching bags, right? You see it. Young people are kicking, you know, bags and punching them. And so on any given day, how many people are watching your content? Well, I would say this, uh, uh, the one thing, you know, the, the, a good way to think about this is, you know, viewership per, per, per live event, right? Uh, last year, we averaged uh, 20 million. This year, we peaked at 43 million, which was Tokyo in March. We're going to try and break a record in Tokyo again this coming Sunday. That's a very big number, okay? Um, in some cities, uh, 9 out of 10 TV sets at that point of time uh, are tuned into our event that are on, are tuned into our event. Um, the, you know, the, 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 um, the NFL Super Bowl, which is the most watched annually occurring sporting event in the world, is about 100 million viewers. That's once a year. Yeah. You know, their normal numbers are more teens, kind of 20 plus. Yeah. Right? The NBA is single digit. But to be fair, they have yeah. you know, a lot of games. Yeah. A, lot, a, lot, a lot of games in their core markets. Um, so we, we actually today, that, that's why today we're already the largest, right? Because once again, we cut yep. across so many different countries. Yep, yep. It's not like three countries are interested in this sport, right? Yeah. Many countries are interested. Yeah. So we've gone from like 700,000 viewers just a few years ago yeah. to 20 million last year. This year we peaked at, you know, 43 mil, yeah. uh, Tokyo in, uh, in March. We, we kind of came close again in Manila, you know, some months ago. Um, and now we're trying to break the record again yeah. uh, in Tokyo uh, uh, this Sunday. And this will just grow and grow and grow, you know, yeah. as we enter new markets, as we do more promotions, as we, you know, continue building the brand. So we want to get to a point in a couple of years where we are literally doing 100 million viewers globally yeah. per event, which is what the NFL does once a year. Yeah. Imagine that. That's why I'm saying, you know, when I think about comparables, I think about the NFL. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's switch gears to more tactical stuff. Um, cause I think, you know, stories are great, but people yeah. always want to know, Hey, what's, what's the hard stuff? Um, how do you actually get things working? Mm. Um, so you've been scaling pretty fast. You've opened tons of offices. You've increased the number of events that you're doing each year. 
Um, and, and you, you know, you referred to a number of things about new markets that you guys are opening up. Mm-hmm. How do you think about like which markets to open up? Right. Right. What What are the required ingredients before you say, yeah, mm-hmm. this is a market that's ripe for our content? Mm. Well, I'd say, mm, well, obviously, first of all, we have to be confident, right, that the content uh, is, is going to work. It hasn't been, once again, it hasn't been that big of a challenge, to be honest, because martial arts as a genre is a well, is well known. Mm-hmm. Now, in some countries, it's more commercialized than others. But in general, like I said, everyone knows Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan. Yeah. You know, uh, martial arts have been in the Olympics for many, many, many years. Yeah. Right. Um, and in the U.S. in particular, the UFC has has mm-hmm. uh, you know commercialized uh, mixed martial arts you know, yeah. for many years. Yeah. So in many markets, there, there, you know, people are not. There is definitely an audience for this, and there's yeah. definitely a receptivity. And I think what what makes a difference, obviously, is if you have a local hero in a country, right? Yeah. That makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Because ultimately, the whole uh, what really draws people, just like what drew us to Joseph Schooling, what drew Chinese people to Yao Ming and Li Na. Yeah. These are local heroes on a global stage. Yeah, someone so we are who looks already, like us. Exactly. So we're already on a global stage, uh, but obviously it makes it a lot easier to build traction in a country if that country has some local heroes to celebrate. Okay, so I think that's obviously one ingredient that smoothens, uh, smoothens uh, mm-hmm. the process. I think the other thing is partners. You know, this ultimately is a business of partnerships. And we are blessed to be on the largest you know, TV and digital partners, not just in Asia, but globally, right? Turner Sports in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, SETV in Indonesia, yep. Tencent uh, in China. Yep, yep. Um, so I think the availability, you know, of a partner that uh, that understands what we're trying to do yeah. and wants to partner us in making this big. And look, partners can come in different forms. We're partnered with with telcos. You know, we uh, you know we did a deal last year uh, with a whole bunch of telcos, all the biggest ones in uh, in, uh, in Southeast Asia, including Telcomcel, Globe, you know, Singtel, etc., AIS in Thailand. Um, uh, Telenor in, uh, in Myanmar, um, because guess what? They they too need content, mm-hmm. right, to create uh, stickiness, right, and data usage. Um, so I think the availability of a couple of good partners, usually one TV, a couple digital, a telco, yeah, um, and the ability to partner with them and do deal do a deal with them, yeah, that obviously you know helps. And in how fact, do you think? In fact, normally when you enter a new market, you know a lot of people are like, oh, why don't you just have an event there? Well. That's the beauty of this business. You don't need an event to yep. have a business. Yep. <laughs> it's just like in the U.S. Yep. I'm profitable in the U.S. Yeah. without having staged anything in the U.S. Yeah. And so right. I think the follow-up question then is, yeah. how do you think about where you should have events? Right. And how right. do you think about, uh, I know you guys are investing a lot in yeah. identifying and training up young talent, right? Yeah. So how do you decide which markets you're going to invest in, like doing essentially like I think like a reality TV show around like finding new talent, right? Right, right. For your global yeah. sort yeah. of platform. You know, once again, the, the reality... The, the, the talent search slash reality show model is a well-known totally. in and of itself. Totally. Right? So once again, we don't have to explain to people yeah. you know, why this is interesting. So it ends up just being a factor of, I think, finding the right partners to work with. I think it also, um, look, ultimately, be, you know, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that there is a playbook to enter countries. And because martial arts is generally understood and well-known globally, we can do this in many, many different countries. But ultimately, look, um, to have an event requires logistics, uh, requires flights, requires you know, operational, uh, uh, um, high operational uh, activity and intensity. So obviously because we're Asia-based, we've started our event footprint largely in Asia. We started in Southeast Asia, we're now in China, we're in North Asia, uh, Japan, Korea. Um, and 
because we have very supportive partners in the U.S., and we actually have a lot of fans in the U.S., we're now you know planning to do our first uh, U.S. event there. Yeah. Because ultimately, a live event is still the you know is still the most high touch way to light up. Mm-hmm. Your fans, mm-hmm. your business partners, mm-hmm. potential clients, yeah. potential sponsors, yeah. potential distributors. Yeah. People like to feel in touch, you know, what yeah. the event is. That's why even the NBA, once again, they build a big business in China without having any real mm-hmm. sort of material event mm-hmm. footprint in China. But they still have exhibition games here because it's their way of, you know, lighting up what we call the ecosystem. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, you've got a very global platform, but also very local content, right? With the heroes, um, with the stories and whatnot. Yes. Do you have any good stories about, like, something that, you know, really could only happen in Thailand or really could only happen in Indonesia? <laughs> um, well, I will tell you this. Uh, I'm not sure if this could only happen in, uh, in you know, in Asia, or well, in this case in Myanmar. But so, uh, so you know how just now I mentioned that um, at its peak, nine out of ten television sets that were on in this country yeah. were watching our event. Yeah. That was Myanmar. Yeah. And that was when Aung La and Sang, our Myanmar's hero, uh, was uh, was was uh, fighting. You know, uh, in a title fight. Um, so he is a uh, double uh, belt world champion, uh, middleweight and light heavyweight. He's actually going to be competing uh, in Tokyo. Uh, this coming Sunday against Brandon Barra, mm-hmm. you know, our, um, our um, heavyweight champion. Um, he is so famous. He is so famous in Myanmar, okay, that uh, they actually, the government actually erected a statue of him. Let me, I can show you. Actually, you should Google this. Just Google Ong La and Sang. I'll, I'll, I'll share with you the spelling of his name. Just Google Ong La and Sang statue and you will see. A ton of people came out for its unveiling. We should actually charge them <laughs> IP rights. And, and in the statue, guess what? In the statue is ca- are carved the two belts. So not only did they erect a statue of him, yeah. they erected a statue of him holding our belts, one championship belts. Yeah. This kind of thing can only happen I think sports. they're going to charge you for those impressions, <laughs> man. No, but, but here's the thing, right? But, but here's the thing. Because... Local heroes on a global stage are so scarce in Asia. So That's when a totally local hero true. On That's a global totally stage true. Happens, right? When a local hero on a global stage happens, you should have seen the guy that Angla defeated, okay, when he won the title. Big Russian guy. Looks like he walked out of Rocky. I'm serious. <laughs> the, the guy from Rocky, right, that Sylvester Stallone was fighting, yeah. this is exactly the same guy. Yeah. You know? So no one, he, no one thought he, he was a, he was an underdog. Everyone, everyone thought he was done, right? Um, and I remember when he when he won the belt, he dropped to his knees, he cried, and then later, you know, during his uh, acceptance speech, he was yeah. like, "Myanmar, you know, I'm not strong, I'm not fast, but with you, I can do anything. With you, I have strength, I have courage, mm-hmm. right? And that's what really so that's that, and that's why there's a statue of him. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty yeah. awesome story. Aung San Suu Kyi invited him." you know, to her residence yeah. uh, the next day. Yeah. And they had tea and, you know, it's just, only sports can do that. Yeah. But you see, sports can do that um, in a very powerful way in parts of the world which are not used to having their own hometown heroes on a global stage. Mm-hmm. Yao Ming was always a great basketball player. I followed his career since he was playing in China. Yeah. But, and in China he was famous, but no one really cared too much because in China he was beating up other Chinese players. <sighs> 
But in the NBA, when he starts beating up Shaquille O'Neal, that's when people start caring. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Same thing with Ola. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so as you're building this global team... Yeah. You should Google it, by the way. I will. I will it. definitely yeah, yeah. Google this. <laughs> Ola and some statue. Um, yeah. As you think about growing this global team... Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you think about the right types of talent to hire in each yeah. market? What makes someone great for one yeah. championship, yeah. but also great for their specific market? Right. I would say what makes someone great for one championship is some is probably the uh, something you know is something that we anchor on a lot when we interview. Um, look, obviously, you know, local knowledge, local uh, you know execution uh, execution experience, local connectivity, all those things, of course, matter. You've you've hired people too, right? Um, uh, so local expertise matters, but I think the one thing that we screen for very aggressively, and this is how we make sure we maintain, you know, our culture across the world is we look for what we call PhD, poor, hungry, and determined. We look for people with that PhD factor, hmm. not necessarily, they're not, they don't have to be poor <laughs> or, or literally, not literally, right? Poor, hungry, poor and hungry, but in spirit. Right, they're always striving for something. They act like they're hungry. Right, they act like they're poor. They always want to go that extra inch, that extra mile. Right, to 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 strive for something. Hmm. And you know, for for different people, they're motivated by different things. Um, you know, some people, um, you know, had had a, a tough childhood. You know, and just want to kind of, and have always had that determination, right, to break out and and, and make a better life for themselves. Some people have had a comfortable childhood, but they have a different chip because they want to show. Right, um, you know that that they're not some uh, some uh, some um, you know well-off kid that doesn't have any uh, skills or capabilities on their own. Right, um, some people just love sports. Right, some people like myself just want to put my you know our home country of Singapore and Asia on the world sports map, and that's what gives us energy and that's what gives us this determination to really kind of go the extra mile. Um, so that's what we look for. We look. For, it's like a very um, we're very uh, I would say we're pretty maniacal about it mm-hmm. because when you have a bunch of people that are highly driven, highly passionate, working together, y- you know, magical things like can yeah. happen. Yeah, you, no, it's awesome that, right? when everyone is right. aligned. Yeah. And that's why venture capitalists, right? When there's no, when there's no business and you're backing someone at a seed or Series A round, you, I, I'm sure you look for similar mm-hmm. traits, right? Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of crazy uh, uh, <laughs> in the type of people we look for. Yeah. And in terms of different markets, I'd say, you know, to be honest, it wouldn't be unlike what other companies need, right? Local expertise, local connectivity, local insight. Um, Do you need to have so martial right? arts skills? No, you don't have to. Now, obviously, it helps if you're into it. But, you know, to be honest, like, for us, the most important thing is PhD. You know, resumes don't matter as much. A background in martial arts, all yeah. those are good to have. You yeah. know, it doesn't matter as much. Even prior experience doesn't matter as much. If you're PhD, you will learn it, right? And you will, you will figure it out. I feel We're like most believers. of your board went to HBS. <laughs> a lot of them did. <laughs> a lot of them did. Um, a lot of them did. Well, the, the, the you know, the, 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 the senior management, you know, Chatri, myself, and, uh, and Sarp, you know, our vice chairman. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a bit of an HBS connection. <laughs> um. Yeah. Cool. Well, so this has been awesome. It's been pretty wide ranging and I think just want to close with the last few questions. Um, What's been the most surprising part of your, you know, your role in the business so far? Mm. 
Well, you know what? When I when I joined the business, um, we were already relevant. Uh, we were we were already you know uh, well we were already global in that we had you know broadcasts in various countries. We had distribution in various countries, definitely in Asia, even outside of Asia. But the you know but the number of countries that we are active in has just grown so much. Yeah. So while I knew that I would be traveling a fair bit because of the multi-country nature of the business, you know, I had no idea I'd be going to the U.S. and doing a deal with Turner. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I had no idea that we'd be doing a deal in Russia. I had no idea that I had no idea that we'd be partners with Germany. I had no idea we'd hire like a, a, a you know a, a, a president of Italy. You know, which by the way is you know MediaSet, which is yeah. uh, our partner in Italy, is going to show our you know our uh, Sunday event live. Um, that's been the. When I look back, I can see the logic of why that's happened, but it's just surprising and cool. You know, I saw myself traveling around Southeast Asia, going to China. Yeah. But I went to the U.S. probably as many times as I went to I went to China last year, yeah. second half last year. Yeah. You know, to do a deal with uh, with Turner Sports. Yeah. So it's kind of cool because you know I spend different parts of my life focused on different regions. You know, my final, uh, uh, my final few years at TPG was more focused on Southeast Asia. I started TPG in the U.S. as yep. you remember, right in San yep. Francisco, and then in the middle of my TPG career, I was on the China team. Yeah. But every one of those times, I it was focused on a region: mm-hmm. U.S., China, Southeast Asia. Yeah. With one championship, it's been pretty cool to be able to kind of, <laughs> yeah, do everything. <laughs> and most startups, you know, or most growth companies that you will meet, uh, that you do meet, they'll in be Southeast much more Asia, focused on one. Are more focused on yeah. either a country or two or a region. Yeah. They're definitely not. Going from Germany to <laughs> the U.S. <laughs> so yeah. I, I've also it's traveled cool. a lot yeah. more in this role than I had in previous roles, and like yeah. one thing I've observed is like yeah. when you travel more, everything feels like the contrasts are sharper. Yeah. Right, because yeah. you're because you're moving from place to place, so you sort of see everything in contrast to the other places that yeah. you see more. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious. You know, we sort of opened the conversation by talking about like mm. putting Singapore on the global map. Right, like mm. building a like a global business out of Asia, with all the travel that you've done, um, mm. and in the process of building this business, like, what does it help you? Does it help you see Singapore differently? Has anything changed about? Wow. How you? <laughs> what? Yeah, just a, that's an interesting. That's a very different question. That's a very different. You know. You know what I'll say. I'm. It makes me appreciate. Um, how well positioned Singapore is to create businesses that can act and think globally. Once again, I'm not. I'm, I'm almost sounds. I'm just giving <laughs> Hua the like. Wait a second. I'm not setting yeah, up yeah, to yeah, have yeah, a marketing yeah, yeah. message here, buddy. <laughs> no, but you think about it, right? Like, in terms of connectivity, in terms of communication, in terms of time zone, in terms of just infrastructure, um, it's just easy to fly in and out of Singapore. It's easy to call someone in China from Singapore. It's, I don't know. It's just, it's just such an international city. Think about it, right? We're both ethnic Chinese. Yeah. Okay. And we all grew up in a, in a multiracial, multi-religious, like really multiracial, multi-religious situation. Um, when I go to China, I'm speaking Mandarin most of the time. When I go to the US, you know, I'm speaking English most of the time, obviously, right? And then I fly south to Indonesia, yeah. right? And my... My limited, you know, uh, uh, it's limited, but I yeah. still, you know, because we grew up in, you know, yeah. around a lot of Bahasa as well, yeah. right? So it's like, hey, like, as a Singaporean, 
I'm actually pretty versatile. Yeah. And being domiciled. Not to mention to... all of your different English accents. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I feel like um, when you ask me, does it. So people like to think about Singapore as a small country in Southeast Asia. Um, it was a fishing village a long time ago. Obviously, it's. You know, people say Singapore punches above its weight. I would like to think that. Um, I, I, th- I now think about that in a very material sort of way. You know, given the education that we received, given, given, no, I'll give you an example, right? Um, a very real example. Singapore has spent many, many years, because of our small size and because of our lack of natural resources, um, many, many years aggressively pursuing uh, and cultivating friendly foreign relations with mm-hmm. multiple countries. Mm-hmm. So we had trade offices, you know, Enterprise uh, uh, Singapore has offices in so many different countries. And I would say many of our government leaders are very supportive of helping companies move out of Singapore, helping companies do things outside of Singapore. Yeah. So we actually work very closely with the Singapore government and their field offices, mm-hmm. you know, in China, in India, in the US, uh, in Indonesia, um, to create business opportunities, you know. So in a strange way, because of Singapore's small size, it had to focus a lot on building up external uh, relations. External relations. Yeah. And me now as a businessman, yeah. uh, I, I enjoy the fruits of that. Yeah. You know, we have to give Singapore a lot of credit, you know, starting yeah. from our founding father, right, Lee yeah. Kuan Yew. I mean, think about Lee Kuan Yew. I mean, he had, a, he had you know, it was with him. Look, look at, you know, Singapore-China relations. Many countries kind of fall in and out of favor with China. We've had generally good relations yeah. uh, with China. Oh. And, uh, you know, be it GIC, be it ESG, various government bodies, you know, have had long-time presences there, oh. right? That helps a business like us yeah. when it comes to leads, when it comes to connectivity. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? No, it totally is. It totally is. Um, all right, last question. Yeah. What advice might you have for someone who wants to start a global media business? Hmm. Be wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say, you know, I would say, I would, you know, just looking at, you know, the, the, the journey, right, that, that Chatri embarked on. And, you know, once again, fortunate to now be part of that journey, right, as his partner. Um, Ultimately, media is about reach, frequency, and engagement. So these are the three metrics. Obviously, revenues are important for any business. But in terms of measuring the health of the business, it's about reach, frequency, engagement. How many eyeballs are you touching? How How frequently... Are they watching your content? And how engaged are they? Yeah, are they talking they about it? Are they sharing it? Are they crying? Are they laughing right when they watch? So what does that mean? That means you have to focus on product and distribution to start. Make sure that you know your product and be maniacal about perfecting it. Now, obviously, that means you need some funding, <laughs> right? Because you have to invest. Um, but I, so I think about, so you have to focus, so I don't say you have to focus on product and then find the right distribution partners to spread the product. That is the starting point. That's the starting point. It's not how many events you have, right? It's not mm-hmm. how many markets you have events in, it's how many fighters you have. You know, it's, it's really, what is your product? Is it, is it, this is a drama series? Is it sports? Is it, you know, um, do you want to make movies? Yeah. Well, if you want to make movies, then, you know, what is your movie about? Who are you trying to sell it to? You just be maniacal about making the best movie you can. Yeah. Because that ultimately, you know, good content will ultimately scale itself. Yeah. Right? I don't have to subsidize anyone to watch it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's just so much subsidizing 
that's happened in many businesses across the region. Um, you shouldn't be spending on, you know, you should create content that's good enough for people to want to watch and engage with and spend hours watching without having to pay them to watch it. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. the advice I would give. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I know it's <laughs> late, um, but really appreciate you spending the hour. Thank you. And uh, sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Shian. All right. Wow. That was an awesome interview there, Shion. Oh, well, thank you. That was cool. It really opened my mind, actually. Um, you know what my biggest takeaway was? Hit me. Asian brands can be built for global impact. I, I mean, I, it's, it's not just about, like you said, I mean, I, was, I thought going into this, so this guy's building the UFC for, for Southeast Asia. That's not what's happening here. He's trying to build an Asian brand that's going to go global for sports and storytelling. And it made it spurred on my imagination about what can what else can be done from this part of the world. You know, I, I you know there are other examples out there. I think of um, you know smaller ones, but but still nonetheless. I mean, I have a friend who is building a gin brand with Asian botanicals in it called Paper Lantern, right? So it's gin, but it's produced in Vietnam with Asian botanicals and Asian flavors in it. And that is, again, something that can be exported to the world. I think about uh, the Asian parent who's building parenting advice for local communities in Malaysia and Indonesia and, and all over the world. But, you know, we can build brands from Asia. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing about one championship is their insight that, hey, Asian people were doing martial arts for 5,000 years. <laughs> and so it makes me wonder, like, well, what are other things uh, that are really um, – local to Asia that have global appeal. And the one thing I've often thought is, and this is always about the West appropriating our stuff, like superfoods, okay? <laughs> you know how like goji berries. They're goji like the berries. superfood yes. in, you know, du jour. Yes, the food of yogis. And I was like, goji berries, like, this is just gauki. I've had this in my soup that my grandma has made me from when I was a little kid. <laughs> and why isn't there like a global Asian wellness brand, you know, focused around you know, all of our, you know, Ayurvedic healing, um, all of the old Chinese medicine, um, things that have just been modernized um, for a global audience. Yeah. And so that's sort of one thing. I think one place where Asians have sort of done it is in education. So, you know, Americans do Singapore math. Kumon. Kumon. Um, but there are things that, like, Asia has a long history of. Like what? Education and no. Ayurvedic healing. Yoga. Yoga. Yoga is from India. <laughs> um, I thought it was invented in the United States. No? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, I guess we invented jazzercise. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can, you can take credit for jazzercise. <laughs> the Asians are not going to claim that. Fair. But, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff. And I guess as the world becomes uh, more globally informed, we become more aware of all the beautiful, amazing things that Asia has to offer. And Asia is actually not one culture. It's a panoply of cultures. Yep. So actually, many things to one offer. more. Cosmetics. Cosmetics. Well, how are Asian cosmetics different? Well, I mean, have you heard of K-beauty? I have not. Oh, my God, John. <laughs> I'm going to send you some masks for please, your face. Please, please do. Uh, but, you know, K-beauty is a huge industry. People follow Korean beauty practices okay. and trends. Yep. But there isn't a dominant, you know, when you think of cosmetics, people think Estee Lauder. Right. They think L'Oreal. Yep. These are old, like, American, European brands. But and, actually, and the Kardashians. Don't oh, forget the Kardashians. Yes. 
unicorn right there. Yeah. But but I think you know there is a long history of Asian cosmetics that hasn't really they haven't really built global brands yet. But I think right. that's another opportunity for people to think about you know what are things that have a lot of appeal, a lot of history. Um, and just need to be repackaged for a global audience. So beauty, e-commerce, health and wellness. Education. Education. What else we got there? We've got... Um, booze. Booze and booze, of course. Yeah. So, yeah, I think for all the entrepreneurs who are listening and thinking about what their next gig is, um, you know, g- give a thought to some things that are not so much copying from the West, but how, what can we take uh, into the global arena? Yeah, and think big. Absolutely. All right. Sheehan, thanks for another awesome episode. Catch you soon. Sounds good. Take care.